my 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 new policy is just to is just to make make women walk away saying, "Man, I wish I could have him." That's like, oh, he's married. Oh, he loves his wife. Oh, he's a winemaker. Oh, he's so funny. Oh my God, he's good looking. You know, it's sort of like it's such a good game. I completely agree with you. It is. Isn't, isn't that isn't that what the new hunt is? Is to just make women jealous of our wives? I mean, I sort of feel like that's what it. Hey, listeners, welcome back. Landline Podcast, thank you so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. As we say, if you want the podcast to go and go strong, share it with a friend, family member, person you're married to. Great way to get a divorce. Tell them about Landline Podcast. In any event, we're back with another episode of Two Guys, One Cup, where Tim and I, Tim the winemaker from Napa and I, Share a bottle of wine. Share two bottles of wine, actually. We both drink a bottle of wine from far across the country. You'll get some notes on that. Coming up in the show, this is a little bit of a fun, uh, dark comedy of sorts. And it's a little sloppy, too, because we do drink an entire bottle of wine. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, If it's your first episode, maybe check out another one. Or, you know what? Fast forward to the middle of this one if you really want to get confused. Check out other episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TalkForAliving.com. We really appreciate all the support. The 50th episode that you've heard so much about is coming up soon. And there should be more episodes up this week. That's right, the week you listen to this, unless you're in the future. With Saul, with Saul again, with Giles. And there should be a movie annex coming up. So thanks again for the support. Spread the word. Landline is going global. As you know, we're all going to ditch our cell phones. That's the plan. All right. Love you guys. Enjoy the show. P.S. Music by Pitchfork Revolution. Bend Oregon. Love you guys. And the bottle of wine we're drinking, if you want to speed your liquor store and get it, is... A 2014 Chablis by Jean-Marc Brocard. Thank you, Madame Travis, Madame Hutchins, all the madams in the Dresden School District in Hanover, New Hampshire. Available for around 19.99 at your liquor store. Widely available, from what we can tell, at least both in Massachusetts and California. So that's wide. All right, longest intro ever. Enjoy the show. Hey, you're in, Tim. Welcome, Landline Podcast with Tim, Two Guys, One Cup. We are going to go dirty, Tim. We have a license to go Peach Pit After Dark, Howard Stern E-Show, Softcore Porn on Skinamax. Um, If you are my employer, if you are possibly going to leave me in your will, if you think that words um, like fucking shit are annoying, just turn the podcast off now. But what I want to do here, Tim, is let's open the bottle. Like, new rules, two guys, one cup. We explain everything after there's wine in our mouth. All right. Well, I got to reach into my freezer and pull out my wine condom. 
which is manufactured or something you made at home? Oh, manufactured, but it's more or less a ice pack that has a little neoprene, and you just slide your bottle right in, you just park it right inside that ice pack, and uh, it's supposed to help keep your things cold, but I have a feeling this first sip of uh, chapless is going to be fucking awful and warm. <laughs> so, um, what temperature are we supposed to be drinking this Chablis at? Oh, let's be honest. Everyone drinks their white wines too cold. Um, 55 degrees. Okay, here we go. I'm going. You've got a course. I mean, well, oh, i got to put the mic down. You've got a screw top. So from Oh, a, yeah, I'm already in. I'm already in, and I'm swirling. Oh, no. I'm behind. Hey. All right, what are we smelling for? Um, you tell me what we're smelling for. We're smelling because it's fun to smell things. Hold on, snot rocket on my uh, 1791 floor. Very, lemony. Is that too cliche to say, lemony? Oh, I mean, no, I think I think citrus notes are, are pretty common in, in Chardonnay to begin with, so... I think that's a fine thing to say. Mm. I had a sip. Oh, shit. We should have cheers. Mm. Tim, let's cheers to your new child. How many weeks away are we? Uh, we're moving in fast. Um, you know, I think officially we're just under four weeks away. Whoa. Um, but I think these Marcus girls, they really like to cook the baby before they do them. as far as five to almost six weeks if um if that's the case all right you just cut in and out there but it doesn't matter um you sound great now okay well cheers to your new baby less than a month away it's the last month of your life on earth where you won't be a father that is both super exciting and probably horribly frightening but cheers to you tim way to uh have uh super sperm well i think i just have normal sperm um, and it's, you know, I think that's one of the funny things about fatherhood is it's about as normal of a thing as anyone can possibly attempt doing. Um, so in some cases it's incredibly boring and it's maybe not even something to celebrate, but that's not true. I'm excited. Um, it's okay. You'll get warmed up. You haven't been on the pod for a while. So let's just go over the rules here, folks. Welcome to Landline Podcast again. Thank you for listening. Tim listenership is up i'd say we had some exponential growth since the last time you were on the pod very exciting um, let's talk about let's talk about uh numbers i need some hard digits well let's just say we've done almost 35 percent as much as we did in the first eight months in the last three weeks all right but i won't give you hard so, numbers because i don't want yeah, to we're not we're not we're obviously not working with hard numbers here so, so, um, but we are drinking. The rules of the, the pot are this. This is two guys, one cup on landline. Tim and I oh, crack a bottle of wine from far away. In this case, he stands on Las Amigas Road in uh, Napa, California. I am in on Main Street in Watertown, Mass. And we drink a bottle of wine together. Um, and we talk a little bit of wine. Tim is a winemaker. And then we basically get drunk, and the podcast either becomes funny or terrible. 
I don't think people like get that joke always when I say it, but like it's funny, right? That we start sober and end drunk. Like you got that joke the first time we we figured it out, right? Me? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was. Well, it is. It's it's we're sort of at the whim of how the the spirit, um, the spirit takes us, and that's sort of the fun thing about playing with spirits is that, you know, you're not really always in control. So, Tim, what are we drinking here? Let's talk about it. You just, you're fresh back from France. You know more about wine than 99.9% of the people on earth. Talk to us about this wine. Well, we're drinking a Chablis, um, which is uh, a part of a region of Burgundy, um, and it's Chardonnay. And everyone knows what Chardonnay is. Um, it's sort of the most ubiquitous white wine uh, out there. But Chablis is a very um, very specific type of Chardonnay. And we can get into what makes it so specific um, well, and let's, unique. Let's. Is well, it smaller grape, different clone? Like, what are we talking here? No, 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 no. I, it's really about where it's grown. So the, the region of Chablis is north of what you would call the, the, the main part of um, Burgundy itself, uh, the Cote d'Or, um, Dijon Bone, and South. It's the northernmost part of Burgundy. And it's sort of, you're like driving along, I just drove through it, and if you blink your eyes, like, you'd, you'd, never, you'd never see it. I drove through the town of Chablis, I didn't see a single, uh, single vine, it's just rolling hay fields for the most part. A lot of cheese is being made there. Um, there's a lot of forests, and uh, you know, unless unless you're in very specific parts, um, you don't see any vines. Um, but it's beautiful. Um, you to not see all the vines, and it, you know. So are they? So are they? they how are they is. calling it Chablis? Is that a historical thing, or are they trucking it to the center of town to make it, or what? Well, so Chablis is a region. Um, it's also a town. All right. Um, so the sort of the name Chablis um, is sort of like saying uh, Bourgogne um, or, a, you know, a Burgundy or a wine from a specific, you know, a Napa Valley wine. It's a, it's a white wine. And the one we're drinking specifically is a white wine made from a lot of different uh, vineyards, and bottled and sold as sort of a generic white wine, Chardonnay wine from this region of France. And uh, Jean-Marc Brocard, he, we, we got this bottle for 20 bucks. Yours was a screw cap. Um, and mine was 20, $21.99. California. Um, and uh, Brocard, from the label, looks like he's probably a medium to large-sized Chablis producer, what would you say on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say you're it's probably a good guess. I've never heard of him. Okay. Um, Me neither. Part of part of the thing I love about uh, Chablis itself, and this is maybe a, a generalization, but Chablis is so specific in how it's made and where the grapes are grown, in sort of the history of its manufacturing, um, that. You can find a generic Chablis, and you sort of know what to expect. Um, you know that it's going to be a white wine. It's going to be 
uh, quite acidic. Um, there'll be lots of citrus notes, and that it's going to have a underlying minerality, which is a great word in the wine world, um, but a, a stone, metallic stone quality um, that is uh, really sort of unique to the area where all these all this Chardonnay is grown. Um, and it has, really has to do with the soil type, um, which is this decomposed limestone, this really chalky, um, ancient, decomposed seabed that is now in this strip that goes across uh, sort of the northern middle of France from, you know, from Germany all the way to the, the Atlantic. All right, so, so, so that's something we got to just... Dig, dig deep on for a second the the old there used to be an ocean here trick because we've all heard it your people somebody your father if he's into roadside geology in my case or some history teacher in eighth grade it's like yeah the edge of idaho used to be where the pacific ocean was uh that one has always been hard for me to kind of figure out can i can i get an amen on that like what what happened the the tectonic plates like one went underneath so far that the ocean like filled in the gap or how did that happen all right well there's i mean there's a lot of things going on i think a great example is looking at our fair state and looking at the state right next to it so we grew up in new hampshire which has these beautiful if not short mountains called the White Mountains, and they're, they're famous um, for sort of their severity in, in appearance, very jagged, sharp peaks, but not very tall. Um, and it's all granite. And then what you do, you, you cross the river into Vermont, and the, the topography changes completely, and the geology changes completely. And it's all these rounded, rolling hills. There's no sort of very jagged, um, severe peaks. There's very little granite. And, and what Vermont was also was once a seabed. And so it's, it's mostly limestone, and I think. Um, and it's, it's the same thing that happened. You had the North African plate collide with the North American plate. And in the process, it pushed... All of these, uh, all of the the sea life that was existing on the bottom of the ocean, up into what is now Vermont, and because it was a very soft, uh, a soft stone, you know, the glaciers sort of came rolling over it and rounded everything, and that's sort of what created uh, the differences in looking at, say, New Hampshire versus Vermont. So these are the things that I think people, and I've been, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, but I think. I've been saying it to people. I've realized this about my dad. He's He really loves geology. I really think it's because it's a great way to just realize the futility of everything that's going on in our current planet situation. It's like, oh, okay, so all the sea life was wiped out and pushed into the oceans and fossilized. So, And what, what are we worried about recycling again? Well, I, I, mean, I think that's perfectly fair. I went, I, went, um, I went out to dinner. I went over to someone's house last uh Wednesday in Mill Valley, um, a co-worker of Rachel's and his boyfriend. And his boyfriend is from San Diego. See, dirty, you guys, a, dirty. We're talking gay already. Very dirty. Yeah, but, I mean... I'm just kidding. This guy is... He's, 
you know, he's he's incredibly sweet, and he he liked to joke. But he's he's been house sitting in Mill Valley for three weeks, and he's been joking about being a, a housewife of Mill Valley and like dominating the CrossFit class and like um, just hanging out and getting into arguments in the Whole Foods parking lot, which has Mill Valley has two Whole Foods, a town of. 10,000 has two Whole Foods in it. Um, That's the sound of me trying to get my wine colder. Yeah. Mine's perfectly, perfectly chilled. Um, but, you know, I got talking to him uh, last week when I first met him, and he's a paleontologist. Whoa. And, yeah, well, I mean, we were just, we, he, he's amazing. Um, and he can geek out on all sorts of things. And, you know, one of the things that he's done a lot of is he's he's done a lot of digs on T Rexes, um, which is I think like a twelve a geeky twelve year old's wet dream. Um, but we were talking about human civilization and sort of modern man, you know, nomadic modern man really started thirteen thousand years ago or something around there. That's what he that's what his argument was, and it didn't really have to do with anything but um, temperature. And what he said was that uh, the the global temperatures warmed just enough that a nomadic life wasn't necessary to look for food, that they could settle in a place. And though you had seasons, um, you didn't have to, like, stay. You didn't have to keep moving, um, which I thought was interesting. So, like, when you think about 13,000 years and you think that, you know, the 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 Kimrigian soil of Burgundy was formed... I don't know how many millions of years ago, a hundred million years ago, three million years ago. I don't really know. Yeah, um, I think six, probably sixty-five million years ago. I always go with sixty-five million. It sounds like yeah, that's, that's reasonable, I mean, it, it, but also smart. It, yeah, it puts it puts every uh, it puts everything sort of in perspective. Can we get that gay paleontologist on the pod? He's probably a, a hoot to talk to. Oh, I could get Chris on real quick. He's great. All right. All right. So we're drinking Chablis, Jean-Marc Brocard, 2014, under 20 bucks. Uh, just to go back to something you said about the mineraliness of the soil, which took us on that beautiful gay paleontology um, outcropping uh, in the form of a T-Rex. I think this would go great with oysters. I, I hate cliches. We know that about me. But this tastes like a delicious bottle of wine to eat with like a salty, basic oyster. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, it tastes like it tastes like seashell, you know. I mean, and there's the, would, the translation of soil to flavors in wine is so misunderstood. Um, and by misunderstood, I mean it's not well understood by anybody. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to year in and year out. This is what Chablis tastes like, um, and you can have greater intensity and and greater minerality and greater this and then lesser this and but like that's what Chablis tastes like and you wouldn't even need the lemon for the oyster it's like it's like that's the acid you could do like how come no one's come up with Chablis shooters instead of uh Bloody Mary shooters I'm sure someone has <laughs> uh isn't that game so hard when you go in I mean it's at the point now I'm 33 and I'm I'm like nonplussed by cool things at restaurants Right. Like everything on the menu that like, oh, they do, you know, grapefruit juice with their beer. Like I thought 
I thought last fall, I was like, oh, no bar for brunch does like a cranberry juice and beer. Like in, on Cape Cod, you could do like a Narragansett and cranberry juice instead of like a Montana mimosa. And then sort of my entire like being just shrank inside me a little bit and thought about how like all those little fun restaurant ideas are like a black hole of 14 hour to $14 an hour jobs and like constant staffing issues. Well, it, I mean, I understand it's, it's hard to be original. I to circle back to my dear friend, Chris, who I've met twice um, on his first T-Rex dig. Uh, they, I guess some rancher found, found a giant bone when he was out by his cattle in Wyoming and he immediately, uh, well, he sat. He was sitting in front of a TV um, that night, and he saw some show on some paleontologist from San Diego, and that's how he ended up calling this guy who Chris worked for. And so he went on this dig, and they unearthed this T-Rex, and um, and like whole sculpture, like whole whole sculpture, whole, whole thing, whole thing, whole thing. And at that point in evolution. The breastbone didn't exist, like what we know as the breastbone, the, all this sort of connective cartilage that holds our ribs together. And in the case of a T-Rex, it didn't exist. So there are all these tiny bones. Um, and, you know, as they're digging out this T-Rex, um, Chris realizes that they're not taking all these small bones. And so he goes to his supervisor, this um, famous uh, dinosaur historian and is like well what are we doing with these bones and the guy's like well we're you know we're because this is blm land we're not allowed to take them um we're only allowed to take the stuff that we're going to preserve and then crystal's like well then what's going to happen to them they're just going to more or less erode and wash into the riverbed and the guy said yeah so i'm not going to tell you to take them and i'm not going to tell you you can't take them so Chris, I guess, just stuffed his pockets full of all these T-Rex bones. Wow. Um, and then what he would do, and this is like how he would impress people, he would have them over for dinner and say he'd tell them he was making T-Rex soup. And he would make a soup and just throw a T-Rex bone, which at this point is not a bone, but a, but a fossil, fossilized bone, and just throw it into the soup. And so you'd be served a soup that the broth had a T-Rex bone in it while it was being sort of created. Now talk about, talk about original ideas. He said it wasn't his, but uh, it was sort of a paleontology uh, culinary secret. That is blowing hipsters' landlines up across the country right now. That, uh, yeah. that... T-Rex soup. T-Rex soup cannot be beat. It's it's yeah. Make that for a fucking dinner party. Leader leader in the clubhouse. Talk about local. <laughs> um. So Tim, you went to France. Um. You've been talking a lot, which is always the case here, and you end up not drinking any wine, and I usually get drunk and then just like slur my way into the end. Uh. I'm 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 drinking out of a little. Now we we haven't talked much here, but uh about. Usually we do a little more wine uh, out of the wine. I'm back to the original glass I used on the first two guys, one cup. Um, it's like a shorty, like a small, short, like Italian mobster glass that they would get at an Italian restaurant. Um, it probably fits 
eight ounces in a pinch, but more like six. And I'm just drinking like little glasses of Chablis. What are you supposed to drink Chablis out of? Actually, and then I have a question for you about uh, ordering wine at a restaurant. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm drinking it out of a a larger vessel. Um, Sort of squattier, wider brimmed. Um, It's sort of girthier than it is tall. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what you're supposed to drink Chablis out of is whatever you can find. Um, this is the glass I drink everything out of, including ice water. So, um, it's a wine glass. I could fit probably two thirds of my bottle into it if I wanted to fill it up to the brim. Wow. That's very girthy. Yeah. It's a girthy, it's a girthy glass. And this is what French people will drink at what? Three in the afternoon. When are we drinking Chablis in uh, Bone? If it's a if the sun. Pe- I mean, if peaks you want out. to limit yourself to an afternoon wine, I think you can drink Chablis just about any time. Okay, um, morning too. Then that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean it's Chardonnay, man. It's like Chardonnay all day. I think is what they say. So it dawned on me as I stood in uh, Gordon's or Dion's wine emporium, whatever the hell it's called, and. Waltham Mass about an hour ago waiting for your phone call. Um, oh, brief aside, I killed technology in the last podcast and claimed that I was going to give up my cell phone again in September. Um, now, you are you know me as the biggest hypocrite of all time. and Or let me put it another way. You know me as a hypocrite better than anyone else. Um, but I was quite excited by the fact that I could videotape the entire lineup of Chablis and then send them to you. I don't know if you watched or not. Uh, no, I mean, that's how I saw the Jean-Marc Brocard. It's like I watched the video, and then I stood in front of the wall of Chablis, and I was like, there's one. There's a Brocard. It's almost like I wish I could have a cell phone that didn't have the Internet on it. Maybe the Internet is the problem. It's not Get the... rid of your data. Yeah, I don't. that's all they sell these days. Um, so we, we, we settled in this wine. Where was I going? Oh, it dawned on me while I was sitting in that restaurant in that uh, – in that wine store that I recently had to look at a wine list at a restaurant and, you know, I'm coming, I'm coming into some student debt here. So it's about time I know how to, uh, order a bottle of wine at a restaurant. And I kind of wanted to take you through all the horrible thoughts I have every time I see a wine list at a restaurant. And maybe you could coach me through how to do better because the first thing that I always think of is, Oh my God, we're going to buy a bottle of wine at a restaurant. Like it's immediately going to be marked up like 35% from whatever it's for sale, like down the road. Why can't we just smuggle it in or chug it in the parking lot or I don't know, get some of that powdered alcohol Tim and I talked about in two guys, one cup episode two. Um, but like, we're going to buy an episode or we're going to buy a, a bottle of wine at a restaurant. It's, it's highway robbery. It's like buying beers at the ballpark. You know, you're getting ripped off. Um, and then you start to look at all the names and it's like, there's gotta be a better way to tell people what it is. Cause nobody knows anything. Like you're in an industry where people know less about something that they consume so much of than almost anything else on the planet. I mean, geez, guys on sports radio know way more than people who are taking wine tours in Napa. Right. Or at least there's way more of them. So yeah, I would say, I would say that's true. So, um, what are we supposed to do? We see the list. It's like, you don't want to order the, the thing on the bottom, but at the same time, like, 
every four bucks when you're splitting the tab and these people are going to over order and they're going to make you pay for half the apps like what are we doing here with the wine list and also all i want is the most expensive wine it sounds delicious and it's like old and usually sparkling or it, it represents some sort of cultural icon of of like expensive wine that I've never gotten to taste. And this is a perfect opportunity. I'm in a restaurant, it's romantic, and I'm with someone I love or good old friends, and I should spend $43 on a bottle of wine. So, like, what the hell do you do when you're ordering a bottle of wine? Um, it's a good question. It's a, it's a, actually a great question, Alex. And I, you know, if, if there's one area of wine that people are the most intimidated about, and I mean educated wine people and non-educated wine people alike, it's it's burgundy um and it's terrifying because when you get into even sort of the lower echelons of burgundy things get expensive quickly um and you know what what might seem like it should be a 25 or 30 dollar bottle of wine is suddenly a 250 to 300 dollar bottle of wine Jesus. and any mistakes are expensive mistakes and on top of that, like it's a pretty, it's a pretty unique and stylized part of wine. And uh, if you don't like it, if it's just not what you're into, then it's a really expensive mistake that hopefully you don't make over and over. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of great ways to approach a wine list. One thing to do is. I mean, I would definitely say talk to, if there's an opportunity, talk to the sommelier. That's what they're there for, and they, they, the good ones should alleviate any fears you have into buying something you're not interested in. Um, the bad ones, well, I think you'll sniff them out pretty quickly. They usually, they usually like to talk um, and not necessarily listen. Great sommeliers will always listen because what they want to know is what you like and what you're after. Um, and based on what you want, they should be able to find something on their list that will satisfy both your budget and uh, your desire. Not um, to mention, not to mention the fact, and I want you to keep going, but that they're they're one of those classic. Uh, um, occupations where if you don't ask them a question, they have nothing to do the, the entire shift. It's like these are people who decided they wanted to be uh, embracing their skill set of delivering information to other people in like a kind, charming, and uh, interesting way. And if the sommelier just stands like polishing wine glasses all night, he wants a new job. So like use him. He's there for you. And totally. and you can factor the cost of him like your the prices reflect his payment every night at the restaurant. Like even if it's only tip driven, they're creating a, a nice base price that they know they're going to get like 17 and a half a percent off of and they're going to tip him out of that. So like enjoy the fact that he's there. You're paying for it whether you use him or not. Yeah, well, and, and, and depending on the restaurant, you know. He's paid off of uh, wine sales too, so there you, you know go. it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to try to upsell you. Um, but he wants to sell wine, and he wants to make sure that you're happy. And great, and I would say honestly, great psalms, if they'll put their money where their mouth is, they'll say, "Let me bring you this bottle, and if you don't like it, 
will find you something else. And, you know, if you give them enough information and you don't play coy with them and you're sort of open-hearted with them, most songs are pretty cool. It's something that it took me a long time to realize that um, they're giant wine geeks. And um, most winemakers aren't giant wine geeks. We love wine and we love making wine, but we don't study it in the same way that sommeliers do. And if you don't like it, they'll just drink the rest of it themselves while they do key bumps of Coke in the bathroom. So, like, what there's, I mean, it's fine, right? Yeah, like, hook a brother up, make him open a bottle that they have to write off at the end of the night. All right, so talk to the sommelier. Hopefully they're good. Hopefully they're not, like, an asshole to you because you wore, like, reef sandals into the restaurant in Napa, but they might be. And then uh, where do you go from there? Well, then, then I think it's, it's knowing about what you like. You know, it's like you have to have an idea of what you like and why. And it doesn't mean you have to say, oh, I like Napa Cab. What you have to say is, like, what what attributes are you interested in your wine? Do you want something that's refreshing and sort of an aperitif? Do you want something that's powerful and pairs well with your, your food that you're ordering? Um, are you interested in something that's weird and something maybe that you've never tasted before? Um, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. And uh, part of the thing that you have to do is figure out what adventure you're sort of interested in. And then, again, I would say you throw, you throw the ball back into the sommelier's um, court or glove or whatever it is and see what they have to say because they should be good at leading you on this, on this, on this journey. Um, and if you want to go cheap, you can just say, I want something that's good and cheap and this is the sort of wine I like. I like the sort of, I like to ask Psalms to be uh, pros. So I like to ask them what they think their best value is. It's like, what's the best wine for the best price that you have on this list? And then describe the wine. And, you know, ask them to describe the wine. Ask them to be uh, the professionals that they are. And more often than not, they're going to step up to the, the plate if they're actually sommeliers and not just waiters who've pretended for a long time. So Tim is a value shopper. We know that about him. That's one of his great uh, attributes, not only as a person, but as, as, as a podcast guest. He will blow like nine grand on a Japanese SUV manufactured in 1983 that you can only get in Canada, but he's a value shopper otherwise. So. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a cheap, frugal New Englander. And... With, with money. With his, with his wife's money. Well... No, I'm just, kidding. I'm just kidding. Wait a second. Wait, hold on. I got to stop my running toilet. I negotiated a $50 uh, decline in my rent, and the maintenance guy hasn't shown up since. Do you think there's a connection? Uh, all right. Do we need to hang up, or are you going to do it live? All right, never mind. It was the fan. I'm getting drunk, clearly. Um, okay, so you went to France. Do you want to talk about that? Do you want me to talk? Do you want to uh, – where do you want to go here? I can – you know, there's a couple things I can complain about. We can talk – we have to touch base on who the godfather of your child is going to be because um, although you refuse to listen to our podcasts – Saul did like a 35-minute campaign to be the godfather of your child. 
that included naming all the other viable candidates and then tearing them down and challenging them to a ballroom debate at some sort of, you know, hotel motel in the greater San Francisco Bay Area and paying for the ballroom rental as long as I would set up the electronics and then debating them until he was awarded the crown of Godfather. Well, what what happens if I don't even want to have a Godfather? I mean... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, tell us more. I mean, I just, like... I mean, I don't know. I, uh... No, I mean, everyone who listens to the podcast or is on Earth who knows Saul hopes that he doesn't get it so that we get to hear about it for the next 10 years. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to crush anyone's hopes and dreams, but, like, how relevant is a godfather to a secular half-Jewish family? Um, you know, I've been asked to be the godfather of multiple children, um, and it's always an honor, but, like... Like, what's the expectation? I mean, in some cultures, it's a, I'm a spiritual guide, and I'll help, I'll help the spiritual development of that kid. Some people think about it, well, you know, if the parents die, then they're sort of responsible, whether or not actually, but, um, or sort of, you know, socially or financially. I don't fucking know. Um, I don't know. I think it's sort of an archaic... Uh, and outdated and relatively irrelevant role for somebody to uh, to want. You I know, mean, why do you have to be asked to be a godfather to be nice to a little kid who's, you know, the offspring of one of your great friends? Well, um, in, in Saul's case, he'll pay for the opportunity to get the accolade. I think that that was his one of his main platform points was how much money he would spend on your child, which I know is quite uh distasteful to you um so but highly entertaining to me although you did just bring up a nice point like what about starting a new model which is that at at age 12 when you've actually seen your child develop and become something you know ready for the bar mitzvah or whatever it might be the mitzvah of some kind um that you could declare you could introduce your child to a mentor of some kind who would be the person who would be available for like when you freak out after doing mushrooms in college at five in the morning and they'd always have to answer the phone. Sort of the bow overlock of, of, of godfathers. Yeah. Is, is Bo your actual godfather? Though? He's not. Um, but no. that's a great, yeah, absolutely. A, a family friend who, uh, is yeah, as much my generation as he, as he is his own. Um, but I mean that's another way to go it go at it because you establish a relationship with a baby who really has no say in the matter when you establish a godfather. I mean, and part of you know part of the deal with Saul is that you know. No, we don't know. We want you to tell us. We want you to tell every, us. Every everybody's just so high maintenance, and um, I just. He also wants me to to install an RV in my yard so he can live there because paying rent, paying $2,500, $2,800, $35,000 a month, whatever he pays in Berkeley for his shoebox of an apartment um, is, is too much for him. So it's like 
Do I have to make him my godfather and my driveway lackey at the same time? Well, like, I, feel, I, uh, I feel like we need to know his relationship with God before we make him a godfather. Not that I'm involved in the making, but um, it feels well, like, where's God? Fair, where's, Alex, where's God why, here? Like, like, why would Saul? Why would Saul qualify for the role any more than you would? Oh well, I went into long detail about my strengths and weaknesses as well, um, and you know, I said that if I was ever on the East Coast for any extended period of time, I would be able to offer your child um, introduction into the Blue Blood Society that you've left in your quest to become a nomadic goat herder in the hills of California. Um, but really, you know, I, you know, I don't like to campaign for things like this. I mean, sure, I could be a good godfather, um, but I, I live far away. Um, and ha- how do you know how much you're going to be around f- people moving forward in life? You know, um, also, I have no money. That was a major concern. Um, is money is mo- money a necessary part of being a godfather? Well, my godfather, who is not bow overlock uh sent me a lot of books i had a great relationship with my godfather my godfather john lathrop um been my godfather since i was born and he it sounds like he's from um from alabama I, he I mean, massachusetts um, <laughs> he definitely had yeah my godfather had relatives on the mayflower thank you very much and um he sent me a book every christmas and it would be about like American history or like a classic. Like even recently, as recently as like five years ago, he sent me a P.G. Wodehouse anthology. Um, mm. And P.G. Wodehouse, he's the one who who taught me tickled to the gills. Exactly. To describe being drunk. He so. uses it quite often. And like I liked that he sent me that. He he didn't send it to me to show me that it was the best book of all time, but he did send it to me. To say you should read this too because it's part of the uh, you know you know common nomenclature that I grew up in and that maybe you can carry on. So um, upstanding gentleman, uh, married late in life, and um, every time I see him, the first thing he says is my godson, and then gives me a hug. So I'd say he's done his part. He's also the godfather of like five or six kids. So, well, we want to talk about Godfathers. Let's talk about Jaime Torres, okay, uh, let's. my cellar master, because I think he might be the Godfather to three dozen people. I mean, like every time I've seen him in the last seven years, he's been like, uh, "Well, I just spent two thousand dollars on my new godchild," and he, you know, in the in the Catholic tradition, and specifically the the. California Mexican Catholic tradition, the Godfather has a financial role in the baptism and upbringing of the child. Um, but it's uh, being a padrino is like the real deal. And so, it's something that he's very proud of, but I think maybe financially poor from. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, like, I'll, I'll, at the risk of, or at the guarantee of being racist at least three times in the first sentence. Let's talk about the Mexicans spending all this money on stuff like that. So Jaime makes a lot of money. Um, he works really hard. I've worked. He's been my boss several harvests at your winery. Um, so I have nothing but the best to say about his work ethic and his value to a company like yours. Um, but 
these people have a lot of kids a lot of times. And, and when you say these people, who exactly are you referring the, to? The Mexican-American community, specifically in California, and they're responsible for sending money back to Mexico in a lot of cases. And then there's like the big wedding thing, the big birthday thing, Sweet 16, the conference. No, no, no. No Sweet 16. It's called a quinceanera. Okay. That's a Sweet 15. <laughs> they do Sweet 15? Honestly, quinceanera is when you turn 15. Okay, well, so they just do, that's like such a Puritan thing, sweet 16. It's like sweet 12 everywhere else in the world. And um, then, uh, you know, moving on, they do the confirmation, they do the baptism. Do you think if we did like a, if we, if we track, trace the money, if we trace the Venmo transfers, that it's all just coming back to them once they have a new kid? Or like, what's the situation well, there? Let's be honest. It's no, it's no Venmo. I just poured Shibli all over my computer. Um, Perfect. Um, it's no Venmo. It is more of a Western Union type transaction. Um, and I don't know if it's coming back or not. I don't like. I don't know where the money comes. I don't know where the money goes. Um, I've never figured that out. Like usually, like mediocre gold rings or like a bracelet or you know, you're the padrino and you pay for like the band at the baptism that for 900 people because that's how big your small um, extended family is. I don't know. Maybe you're going to even, maybe you're going to rent a Chablis Hall at the Napa Valley Fairgrounds for your wedding or your baptism or quinceanera. And maybe you need a godfather or two to help kick in for that. So I don't know. I think it's a pretty loose term. Well, um, and I don't know. I, uh, do we really want to get into where the money goes or where it comes from or well, we got we got to get into something i mean we could we could talk about like girls in short skirts in the summertime we did say that this was an x-rated like so for instance today i biked i biked all the way along the charles river to weightlifting um to, to weightlifting I, that's correct or personal I don't believe you. It's personal training. So I've decided that I'm going to support a business that my cousin works for. It's called Inner City Weightlifting. The founder is a Babson Business School graduate. And he basically decided he was going to start a gym where there were trainers that he had taken from gangs. Like he literally goes parks outside the jail when they get out of jail after being in for whatever infraction. And they're a member of a gang. And he picks them up and he's like, if you don't want to go back in the gang, you can come work for me. And he teaches them how to be like great personal trainers. And then you can go get an hour session for 20 bucks cash if you give it to the guy directly or 25 if you pay at the desk. And they train you and it feels like it's a win-win. I could possibly lose the 15 pounds that I've had for the last 18 years of my life surrounding my strong body. And we could rehabilitate somebody who... You know, or help someone who is rehabilitating themselves. And, like, you know, 20 bucks for, like, an hour of of weightlifting. Like, I'll pay to get fit. Like, if I can go t- twice a week for the next six months, I mean, I've, I'm guaranteed to lose weight, right? No, you're not guaranteed to lose weight at all. I mean, what I realized about losing weight has nothing to do with exercise. and It has everything to do with diet. Will you feel good? Will you get stronger? Absolutely. 
we lose the 18 pounds around your waist, um, 22 pounds around your waist. Would you say it was? Yeah, I mean, 26? exactly. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I, uh, are you going to feel good about it? Are you going to have like a relationship with someone that you might not otherwise that you like? Sure. Yeah, I Dan. Mean, I'm all for it, man. Danny's been shot in the head twice. Shot in the head twice? Yeah, he showed me the scars. Man, all right. He's got an ankle bracelet. He's the full, he's the real deal. Couldn't be nicer. Couldn't be couldn't be a better weightlifting coach. Uh, in this. Well, let's talk about what you guys did. Did you do some squats, some bench pressing? What did you do? It was a lot of like strength training. It feels like it's not really weightlifting. It's strength training. So you do you do the warm up. You do the full foam roll. You got to roll it out. Um, and then you do some box jumps and you do some like. You put in a last you do a put an elastic band around like right above your knees and you do some like moving your legs side to side to like resistance your legs out, stretch those out. And then you get uh, so that's, that sort of works your inner thigh area, the area that women like to have um, like an inch and a half of space when their thighs are together. Yeah, the thigh gap. Yeah, the thigh gap. So you worked on your thigh gap. Today. Wait, so did the did the thigh gap exist before Instagram? Mm. Of course it did. I just never noticed. Like I never really noticed it. I I don't think I ever thought a girl with that figure would ever talk to me. So I just never noticed it. But sometimes it can All be right. kind of gross, right? I mean. I like my thighs to touch personally, <laughs> um, but teach their own. It's like whatever you want to look like, I'm I'm into. All right, um, well, fuck my weightlifting routine. Let's get to the part everyone wants to know about. What is it like to have a pregnant wife? We talked to Meg for a nice hour and twenty minutes. She was very accommodating to the podcast. She told us a lot about what it's like to be eight months pregnant she was coming in on her final little hurrah and at the risk of of being redundant i hadn't had that conversation with your wife so let's have a conversation with an eight week eight month pregnant man like and i got screamed at by the way this weekend for saying they're pregnant or like he's pregnant nobody likes that especially not women. no no one likes that and i'll be honest i'm not pregnant um <laughs> i'm not pregnant i uh I've been doing a lot of surfing and a lot of yoga. I think I'm down six or eight pounds from where I was, say, two months ago. Feeling strong and feeling um, comfortable for the most part. And my wife's not feeling that way. She didn't, I think she slept 20 minutes last night. That's what she told me this morning um, when I got out of bed at six o'clock. Um, she was like, yeah, I didn't really sleep. When I say I didn't really sleep, I slept for 20 minutes last night. And I think that it's really uncomfortable to have a six-pound living creature inside your gut where you have other things like your bladder and, you know, your intestines and your lungs and your ribs and all the things that this little thing just wants to stomp on and kick. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think, Rachel, if the baby was to come tomorrow, she it wouldn't be too soon. So what is it um, like, Tim? Like, what is your relationship with your wife 
how, what does it change? How is it like, what is it like to have somebody who's eight months pregnant in your house versus somebody who you married like less than a year ago, right? Or two years ago? How long was it? Nobody knows. Well, you know that, like, you know when you're showering with someone? Yes. And, like, you're going back and forth from, like, the water to, like, the other side of the tub where you're maybe soaping up or something like that. Yeah. Um, the slide-by is almost impossible. And someone always tries to, like, wash the soap off and slide out first. But if that's me, um, I always get re-soaped on my slide-by Rachel because <laughs> it's just like you can't get around it anymore. It's just there. You gotta just step out of the tub. That's the that's what being a well, yeah, father is all about. Running, I gotta step to the back to get out. You know the you know my shower. It's right. sort of you do it's not, sort of strange. You do not have a large bathroom, but it works. Um, all right, and do you stare at her belly like when you're in the shower with her? We're not objectifying your wife, but these are questions that people want to know the answer. No, I so. love looking at her belly. I love touching her belly. I love feeling my future kid kick her belly as hard as he can. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating and it's exciting and terrifying all at the same time. And um, it, if we were to make a scatter plot of your uh, sexual escapades with your wife and on the x-axis was the uh like dates and on the y-axis was the number of times and maybe it was like week by week is it like a steady just like is it steady is there like a big drop off is it like like is it a steady decline rather um, i think i think that's accurate i wouldn't say that like um I wouldn't say that I married a woman who is like a horny pregnant person. I think most of the time she's like, oh, my God. Oh, my oh my God. Oh, my God. I just pooped. Thank God. I haven't pooped for three days. I like that's where she's getting it right now. Um, and, you know, the oh, my gods that I can give her um, are just are just sort of pushed to the back of the shelf. Um, so, and you're just yeah, dealing, and you're dealing with that. You're just dealing with it the best way you know how. Well, yeah. I mean, it's well, one, it's not that big of a deal Two, Um, you know, when I do get some Nikki, it's fun. And, um, I have to sort of roll her around as best as possible because, uh, you know, there's no missionary when pregnant. Um, Great blog name, though, for all the you people out there looking. Yeah. Missionary well Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, all, it's all great. It's just, you know, there's other things. We, you know, we watch a lot of Orange is the New Black. <laughs> uh, I mean. We watched every TV show known to man. Um, we, have, we have that, you know, under our, under, <laughs> under our belt. We, uh, we go to the. You know, we meet our doula every three weeks. That's always sort of an interesting, terrifying experience. Um, we work on our nursery, which used to be our other bedroom or her bedroom. That's we have a, a crib in there now. That's the bedroom I got. That's the bedroom I videotaped myself masturbating in. It sure is. Let's just say that that mattress that you did that to, um, I drove to Marin and <laughs> delivered to a 
yoga teacher of Rachel's parents who had been sleeping on an air mattress for six months in a house. Honestly, her house is the size of my bedroom that she pays almost $1,400 a month for in this former country club that's now a commune in, in Fairfax, California. Um, so wait, big bedroom or small? I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't tiny, find... tiny. Her home is no more than 130 square feet. Um, Holy shit. Well, that's not the worst thing that happened on that mattress, but that is a good story for the podcast. Ugh. But ma- maybe not today. Um, so, okay. And do you, so, you know, sorry, I'm just, I'm just checking in here with all this stuff. I mean, it is a big deal. It is a big deal to have a fundamental reality of your existence be searching for courting and deciding on a sexual partner and then having your, and I'm not speaking about you now. I'm speaking about like men aging men in general like we're getting old like everyone else did before us turns out and uh the sexual landscape change is i'm not saying that it's for the worse although i believe that it is and i'm not saying that it's for the better um i i I guess i'm not saying the sex is any worse but like the landscape but it's like there was something fun about the hunt, right? There was a thing about the hunt that existed that was there that you could wrap your head around. Now, it was dumb. It was a lot of times unsafe. It was, uh, It is the source of a lot of mediocre behavior by humans that are better than that. It's an excuse to consume a shitload of alcohol. But it is a direction that everyone else is pointed towards, or most people are, and so it's easy to fall in line with. As you get older, as you get married, as you start to have kids, you have to adjust your expectations. You have to change your direction. And I'm not necessarily saying it's worse, although I am, but it is harder, right? I mean, it's a different game. Or it's hard to change. Maybe it's just the transition. Bail me out here, Tim. I don't know where I'm going with this. I do, actually. Yeah, I don't know where you're going either. No, I know exactly where I'm going. I feel very strongly about what I just said. No, I mean, I think that, uh, it, yeah, of course things change. But, you know, the hunt's never, the hunt's never really, I mean, think about those guys who, like, bring the young, the young guys out to go duck hunting. They're still on the hunt. Maybe they don't pull the trigger. Um, maybe they take uh, a lot of satisfaction in all the, the conquests of the younger men. Um, that go with them, but they're still on the hunt. And I think that it's ridiculous to think that the hunt ever dies. Um, it's just sort of what you do on the hunt. Um, and my, my, my new policy is just to, is just to make, make women walk away saying, man, I wish I could have him. That's like, Oh, he's married. Oh, he loves his wife. Oh, he's a winemaker. Oh, he's so funny. Oh, my God, he's good looking. You know, it's sort of like... It's such a good game. I completely agree with you. It is, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that what the new hunt is? Is to just make women jealous of our wives? I mean, I sort of feel like that's what it is. And it's like, 
Well, um, this, is, I, this is why women always loved you, because you're the one who came up with that. Well, I, I'm the one who's willing to put down all the bad shit, and then you're the one who's really willing to clean it up. Well, I mean, I, I, well, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not coming from a, a sincere place. It's like, I think I still want to be wanted, and I still want, like, I still am curious about, about what it, you know, what it would be like to be wanted. <laughs> oh my god it's so funny it not wanted that much anymore no it's true but that's okay there's so many other good things about marriage um no i agree with you it's amazing to walk into a room and ace it with good looking confident women who you're more confident than and know that you never put out a single sexual vibe because you didn't even really have one and knowing that you were like there to be a solid man for them in the sense that you were listening, you were making good eye contact, you were either, you know, working for them or helping them or just like having a nice human conversation with them. And then uh, you were out of there and you never you never creeped them out. It's like the don't creep them out plan is what you're well, talking it's about. Pretty, it's pretty solid. I had a, a winemaker dinner. Um, last Saturday at the, at a at a vineyard, and it's always like sort of a slam dunk of an event because thirty people show up. We bring in really awesome caterers, chefs, and like we pour really great wine, and it's a beautiful place. And I sat down next to dinner next to this um, young woman whose father is in our wine club, and like she's twenty three. She just went to Vassar. Um, Graduated from Vassar. She's a temp, currently a temp in the mailroom at Vassar and couldn't be happier about it. And, like, I mean, I'm not saying that it's easy prey, but <laughs> I'm also not saying that, like, if I had inquired about her stepping into a vineyard with me, she wouldn't have done it. So it's still. You know, I think it's fun to not so not be so powerless. That's the, I guess that's the point you were driving at was like how powerless you feel when you're truly in the hunt, and how how much you really have when you're not really in the hunt. Well, look, this all basically gets back to the fact that I thought I had embarrassed myself most in the last ten minutes, but you just managed to completely cover my ass. So. Um... <laughs> No, I look. What are, what are friends for, my friend? Exactly. Listen, here's the deal: the world wor works in incredibly uh, balancing ways. When you want something, you can't have it, and when you can get it, you're not allowed. So, uh, ooh, ooh. so suck on that. Um, Is there a bell to ring when you pour the last bit of your bottle? Into holy your shit! I still have like three inches, and I am definitely. This Chablis gets you drunk. This Chablis, let's see what sort of alcohol we're talking about here. Um, and, and, I mean, we haven't really finished Chablis because if we want to talk about a... I want to talk about... Uh, go ahead. I want to talk about things we want to talk. Let's, let's fire off some uh, closing 20-minute remarks here with some either anger or resentment or um, joy or excitement. But, yeah, tell me. Tell me about Chablis. Let's talk about tw the 2016 vintage in Chablis. You'll like this. Okay. It doesn't exist. In in the early spring, 
right after bud break, the young vines are beginning to push push um, the new growth out, the new shoots. They had a frost and fucking killed all of the growth, all the young buds. But so what happens after that is that later in the growing season, new buds begin to push. So you had some new shoots coming up, and people are like, well, we're not going to have the harvest we had, but at least we'll have something. And so these little shoots started coming up, and then Chablis got six inches of hail, which knocked, destroyed, honestly, destroyed everything. So in 2016, there will be... Like I mean, there's no other way to put it. There, there'll be zero harvest in Chablis, and we complain in California about like, oh my God, we didn't have a great a great year. Things got hot too quickly, or it rained early, or this or that. But like, well, we still made pretty good wine and harvested five tons an acre from our land. These guys are gonna get nothing. So this twenty dollar bottle of Chablis we just bought. If you tried to buy the twenty 16 version of it um it would be 73 million dollars yeah it's not going to exist so that's one of the you think they have crop crop insurance i i I don't know i think they probably have some sort of crop insurance i think they must um but where chablis grows chardonnay is not where california grows chardonnay um and i have to give the the french credit for the fact that they grow, they grow wine in a much more difficult place to grow wine. All right, so Tim, ask me a question. Ask you a question. Yeah, that's right. I'm just not curious in any way come about on, anything don't, about you. Come on, you don't want to know anything about me? You don't have to... Um, how many times have you jerked off this week with your wife living in New York? Well, it's Tuesday night, and... I'd say it's been at least four. <laughs> and so we're talking about Sunday night? I mean, Monday being the first? God, I don't know. Is that really what we're going to talk about, me jerking off? No, I just, like, I want to just read. I like, I, I like to now and then just remind myself of um, all of your shortcomings so I can feel better about myself. <laughs> no, um, no, it's, like, see... You've been working, you've been uh, consulting with this doggy daycare business. Have you found any pleasure or insight into that experience? I mean, you're the worst employee I've ever met, even though you're a great intern in the wine world. And by great, I mean, you know, tolerable enough that I'd hire you again after two vintages. Um, Like, what the fuck are you going to do? in one year when business school's over. It's that, like you can't make any more excuses about not having a job 33 years into your life. All right, so this is just the best question, Tim, and you couldn't you couldn't ask it at a better time. So, yeah, no, I mean, and before I answer, let's really dissect where we are in that process. So I managed to get into a great business school, get a couple scholarships, get in, ace it first year. Class loves me, I think. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't really know. Talk a lot in class, get, get decent grades, learn a lot, the whole nine yards. But what I've what's dawned on me is now I've got a real problem. 
which is that um, I can no longer go back to a ton of the jobs that I did do for four months at a time prior to going to business school because I can see all the problems with the business now. So now I've got this situation where I really can't make $16 an hour being perfectly happy making brunch at a you know, well-to-do Portland hipster brunch spot. Like, I have to, like, do something. And did that ever make you perfectly happy? I mean, there were, sure, you know, being busy all day is a great thing. Not being in front of your computer all day is a great thing. I rec- I highly re- recommend it to everybody out there who's sitting at their desk right now. Like, I think that that is the great beauty of working in food. There are so many problems with it, the pay, the hours, the you know the health issues in terms of um, drinking and eating f- fully saturated fats all day. You mean cocaine? Um, it's all about the. Well, I never. I was never a night guy. I never worked at night. Um, but the uh, yeah, you know, here's knowing that when you walk into work that you're gonna have something physically to do until you leave. That's a pretty amazing feeling, right? Um, so. So now I can see all the flaws in all these businesses. So now I really have carved out a tiny little center of the Death Star that I need to hit with my, you know, uh, TIE Fighter or whatever the hell they're called in order to actually have something that's... TIE sat- Fighter, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Satis- <laughs> little TIE Boy <laughs> Satisfies me for my life. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I honestly don't know. Like... Without naming names, I have a job right now. Um, I'm going to edit the part out where you said the name. I do. I am happy to help a company right now that is doing really well for the summer. And I am helping them understand kind of the ins and outs of their business. I'm good at it. But what's crazy about this business, Tim, is no, I have not found any satisfaction out of working for them. Because the entire company, this is not like an Alex technology rant, but it is. The entire company is on a phone. I've seen my boss three or four times since the summer started. I have long conversations with people I've never met face-to-face. And it's not even a phone call. It's this thing called Voxer where you use an app on your phone like a walkie-talkie and you send these messages back and forth that get saved in a timeline and the person can listen to it at any moment. It's like an audio text. And then you can add in groups like like an audio text. So you're talking to a group of people about stuff. And all the people who work at this company sort of hate it. They have a really fast burnout rate. Like one of the things I figured out is that these people have to hire so many people a year because of all the people that are leaving that they're spending tens of thousands of dollars a year just hiring. And I don't mean like they're paying to hire. I mean that some person works for them and is looking for somebody to work. And that time that they're spending times their hourly wage equals multiples of tens of thousands of dollars a year and yet there is no indication from the person who's in charge of the company that she wants to fundamentally change the way the communication or the empathy structure at the company works there's no empathy for employees there's no seeing your boss at the end of the day and getting told good job there's no see you tomorrow like it's an incredible learning experience for me you can't have an entire company just based on a cell phone app or at least i can't and no, I mean, I think people can, but it's certainly not a company you want to be a part of. That's right. And so here's a situation where at least now I'm informed enough to know that I'm not just being psychotic. I know that I don't want to be a company like this. 
when I tested at the end of first semester last year, I, so what was most important to me as I move forward in my life, it was having an impact. It was fundamentally like being part of some sort of purpose or part of some sort of movement. And it wasn't actually making money and it wasn't even being in charge. Both of those things were two and three on my list. And so when you're working for a company that has no impact other than selling a service and has no positive impact on their employees, then you're like, well, what the fuck am I doing right now? So I'm not any closer. I want a podcast. I want to make a food blog. I want to like, I want to do fun things. I don't get why that's so hard to do. I think I just need to think about it in a way that I haven't thus far in order to make it monetize, you know? Yeah. All right. Fair, fair, man. I, I, uh, I think those are important things to realize are important to you. I mean, I, uh, what do you want to do when I'm done with business school? I don't know. Probably, <laughs> I mean, probably quit everything I'm doing and move to Boston and be your personal assistant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just finished my glass of Chablis. All right, you want to hang up on me? That was a power hour. One ten, one thirteen. No, I mean, I don't. I never want to hang up on you, um, <laughs> but. That was a pretty good bottle of wine for twenty one ninety nine. He likes it. What would you serve this wine with? You know, oh, that's something I wanted to say earlier. So you're somebody who, you know, okay, let's say you are watching Netflix one night with your husband and you're like, you know what, honey, I think we should get into wine. And you decide that that's something you're going to do between age 38 and 48 while you don't have any kids or whatever the hell it is that you're into. So you start, you know, paying attention to wine and maybe somebody orders Wine Spectator off an airplane one day and here it comes and this is what we should do and let's make sure we buy all the Rydell stemware from the uh, Williams-Sonoma or whatever. Let's join a wine club. But you are so far from that, Tim. Obviously, you're a winemaker, but it's like people go through this sort of process of first we're going to get into what we pair wine with. And then we're going to get into, like, the seasons that wine is supposed to be drank. And then we're going to get into, like, flights of wine. And then maybe we'll even go on a wine trip and better understand the region. And there's, like, all of these elements of getting involved with wine. You are, like, somebody who wants to serve, like, white wine with lamb and red wine with oysters. And, like, your mind is completely fucked. You're drinking 10.30 a.m. You have a giant 500-gallon tank of wine in front of you. So I mean, five hundred gallon. I today today I'm mid bottling right now. This week I'm bottling wine, and tomorrow I'm gonna bottle uh, somewhere in the two and a half thousand cases of Pinot Noir, and I I bottled close to two thousand cases of Chardonnay, our high end Chardonnay earlier this uh, earlier today and yesterday. I bottled a thousand almost 1,200 cases of half bottles of Pinot Noir. I'll be sure to get a case in the mail to you. I know how you like your half bottles. Um, They're so cute. I, I mean, like, what are you going to do? It's sort of like... So I what, don't think you're supposed to do anything. How do you still you're get... supposed to do the things... Like, I think you're just supposed to listen to your heart and, like, listen to, like, what you like. Everyone's so afraid of having uh, an opinion or or having an idea, or having a thought, that, especially in the wine world, that 
that you're you do all these things that everyone else tells you to do. I mean, like, do whatever you want. That's what I. I mean, isn't that your? Isn't that your saying? I want everyone to do exactly what everyone wants to do. Whatever, 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 whatever everyone wants to do, they should do. And that's what you're supposed to do with wine. If you like cheap wine, great. If you like expensive wine, well, that sucks. It means you're just going to spend more on wine. But do whatever the fuck you want to do. It's such an interesting uh, industry that in that it's been so uh, removed from its original sort of pastoral agricultural uh, identity in some ways. Like it's all about elegance and uh, formality and price and uh, you know, the opposite of commodity scarcity. Whereas like you were describing Chablis earlier and it felt like this place that was very much like you're just drinking the water of the dirt. Um, the water of the dirt. Well, what's funny about the water of the dirt is that this 2014 water of the dirt that we just drank was fucking a great Chardonnay. Not just because I drank the whole bottle and I'm a little drunk, but it's a great it's a great wine, um, and that's twenty dollars. So. If, if if people don't like California Chardonnay, I I suggest that you go try some Jean Marc Brocard. All right, let me just uh, take a pee and then we'll finish this up. One second, don't hang up. Okay. I just have a pee and then we'll finish it up. Weakest bladder, this guy. Weakest bladder, I know. Tim. Hello. I know you're there. All right, it's my last glass. I'm going to save one last glass. I'm going to violate the rules and not finish it tonight because I'm home alone and I don't have a glass for my wife, so I'm going to pour one out for her. I, wait, I, wait, wait, wait. Well, 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 not okay what with you? you? Not, not okay. No, it's not okay with me. I just drank the entire bottle. All right, then. We'll have to, you'll have to, keep, we'll have to keep podcasting. So do you want to go to... Quit drinking like a Kansas City Fajol. Do you want to drunkenly talk about family, or do you want to drunkenly talk about global warming? Those are your two choices. Well, I mean, you know my feeling on global warming. We just talked about my friend Chris, the paleontologist. I mean, like, Pachamama is just going to fucking smoke us before we think, you know, we f- we're going to fix global warming. Well, just, um, just help me with the food, the food thing here, because... We know that so so for the listeners, let's let's just chime back in with the listeners here for a second. Thank you for listening, by the way. We really appreciate your support. So I am a uh, complicated consumer of food. I have eaten probably more fast food in the last ten days than I have in the previous ten days before that. Um, and that makes you complicated, that's for sure. And at my core, I uh, spout these, um, you know, very vehement views on food in general. But like Tim, it's just this. It seems like what I've done with food is I've put food in this place where it can be the constant conundrum for me to concentrate on, like. There are people who are obsessed with writing the next joke, right? They hopefully move to Hollywood and become joke writers. 
There are people who like are obsessed with the next pitch and of a baseball season, and they can't wait till the next game starts. And like I'm obsessed with coming up with an unsolvable problem, and it feels very much as if food is the perfect thing for that because every single day I set out to do better with food, and it's like this impossible truckload of complete bullshit being pneumatically sent in a tube to my front door every single day. And I just wonder, I know that you have access to incredible food, but like, do you have anxiety about food on a, on a daily basis? Cause I definitely, definitely do. No, I don't. I don't. I do. I, How do you I mean, do that? I also live in California. I live in California, man. It's like whatever food I want to eat is in season in California. And I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that literally, but like, I had strawberries and blueberries and peach. I had a peach, the ripest peach I've ever had in my life for breakfast at 6 a.m. when I was driving from my house three and a half minutes to where I work. Um, and in most days, if I can hang out and have breakfast, I'm having a really good cup of coffee that the beans weren't grown in California. They were grown in Ethiopia but they were roasted here and they're delicious and they're incredibly expensive. And I have that and I have a bowl of fruit or berries um, on some cottage cheese or yogurt. And that's what I eat for breakfast. And I have no, absolutely no issues with eating that for breakfast. But what about when you're, what about when you're getting like a burger at that God's refresher joint in your hometown? Like, I don't, I don't I don't go to Gats anymore. I mean like the last time I went now and periodically we get food from Gats at lunch at work. And I'll have like a just like a sliced chicken sandwich and it's terrible. I mean do I mean if you want to talk about the things that I actually have moral questions about it's like the whole foods chicken uh, yep. roast roasted chicken. Yep, I'm there. It comes from Mary's which is in Petaluma which is 15 minutes from where we live um and it's a pretty good chicken it's often overcooked um i just i i don't get so worked up about it anymore because you just don't get worked up because you're mostly making decisions you can stand by or you just you've given up caring uh to stuff you you can't control I i think i think about it all the time but i also like don't break my i like don't break my own balls about it it's like uh you know, I have a skirt steak in the sink right now that was growing at Green String Farm. I have some Rayleigh's where I got this lovely Chablis from, Rayleigh's Romaine Hearts that were probably grown in Oxnard, which is Southern California, that I'm, that I'm going to slice and grill. I'm going to cover it with a tahini sauce, some sort of tahini dressing that Rachel brought home from work a couple weeks ago. Um you know, I'll probably find something else in the fridge to cook. And that's what I'm going to have for dinner, and that's okay. You're such just a like, fucking confident California asshole. I hate you right what, now. What, what, what am I supposed to oh, do? Oh, tahini like, dressing that she just happened upon at work? Is that what happened? Her friend who, her friend who lives in Santa, she, Santa Cruz she, brought it up from Santa Cruz. But, like, wait, like you could put fucking, you could jizz on a fucking grilled romaine hearts if that's what you wanted to dress it with. Oh, that like, sounds good. Yeah, I mean, it's delicious, delicious grilled romaine hearts, jizzed on freshly by Alex. I mean, 
It's just it's, a couple of pubes, burnt pubes. I don't know, man. It's like it's just food. And it's like, it's we, not we though. It's these. not. It's not just food. When you're in Boston, you have the worst supermarkets in all of the like <laughs> all the well-to-do white communities that I've lived in. Boston, you have the worst ones. Um, I was gonna say you have the worst ones ever, but you think about all the horrible supermarkets that are out there. But it is July twelfth right now. And there are still fucking California produce in in Massachusetts supermarkets. Wouldn't that drive, well, I mean, drive you? So you're mad that there's not Massachusetts Massachusetts produce in your supermarket? Well, I'm mad that it's just not curated. I'm mad that no one takes the time to present a selection of fruits and vegetables and meats that are representative of anything. That I'm mad that it's not it's not as you know, it it could be the the first supermarket on the moon, and we would just ship it there. That's what it is to me. It's just it doesn't matter. It's the same as other, every other supermarket. And I'm talking about going to the specialty Italian grocery place that occasionally has, you know, some good produce. But it's still just they're obsessed with having every single thing there all the time. Why does everybody have to have everything all the time? That's the part nobody's ever explained to me. Why do people have to have 365 days of escarole or asparagus or radishes? I just don't understand it. Well, that's capitalism, my friend. Welcome to business school. Um, I don't know, man. Move to California. That's an option. All right. You're bored. I got, uh, I got two inches left. I think we're going to put a cap in it. You fucking pussy. Well, you're you're just like I can't I can't win with you. You want me to drink the rest of this wine, but you don't want to listen to me talk. So it's, I want you to go down on one knee, drink it like I just iced you, and just finish it off and just end this two guys one cup the way it's always been ended with both of us finishing our bottle of wine, even though I finished my bottle of wine years ago. Apparently, you don't feel the same way about sh- this bottle of Chablis that I do. This bottle of Chablis is just making me feel so lonely. That's the problem. Well, maybe you shouldn't have let your wife move to New York and teach a woodworking course. For graduate Way students. Way to be the you man have, of the you house. you got to sell the graduate student thing, too. You have to be like, oh, she's teaching graduate students in New York City. No, 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 no. I, I'm trying to make it seem consequential hey tim i've got your super eight films from your wedding right next to me um yeah the ones that were never exposed or developed properly did you want your bachelor party which is truly awful to be combined with your wedding which doesn't include your wedding but does include scenes before and after and is quite well exposed or did you want sure, those? Why, why the hell not all right we'll make a four pack it'll be the uh column markets four pack all right, so what kind of gifts are we hoping for? When is the baby shower, and can we, as supporters of the podcast, send you, Tim, anything? You are a winemaker, so you have plenty of alcohol. You clearly have plenty of food. Your wife is has uh, impeccable taste, and so we don't need any linens or shabby chic pillows in the house. What can we offer you? Well, you, you can only offer me friendship and babysitting. Um We've had two baby showers already, both months ago. Um, 
Jesus. So I two, don't need anything. Two baby showers? Two. Do they do the thing where somebody writes down what everybody gave and then you have to write the thank you notes? Yeah, but we haven't the thank you notes. Uh, did you did you act like completely uh, disestablishment during the baby showers? No, no, I was I acted very thankful because people people were being lovely and normal. That's what they were doing. They were acting normal. People were talking. The first one was was with Rachel's parents' friends, and they were talking about how cool it was to raise their family in a community of great people. And I thought that was really relevant and beautiful. And then the second one was with just our own friends. Um, and that in itself was a, sort of a representation of what these people were talking about. It was all the people who we lived near who who wanted to come and support us. And so in both cases, um, it was sort of a nice experience and reminded us that we weren't alone and that we were going to have friends and family to reinforce us and you know there's nothing to worry about even though at the same time everyone told us that we were fucked and that life was never going to be the same well there you have it folks the from the from the uh, from the mouth of contrary turn concessionary Tim to your ears that is oh fuck you Fuck you, concessionary Tim. That is the like... next time you call me concessionary Tim, I will stick my cell phone. I'll, fuck it. I'll stick your cell phone into your ass, and then I'll go ass to mouth on you. And I'll make you eat your own ass on your own cell phone, you piece of shit. I told you fuck we'd you. get dirty, folks. We are going to have to listen to that part about whether or not our wives still want to sleep with us again before we post it. Thank you for listening to Two Guys, One Cup on Landline Podcast. We drank a 19 to $23 bottle of Jean-Marc Brocard Chablis from the Chablis region and the town of Chablis. It was made in 2014. It has a green moon on the front. You can see the photo on the pod. Check out other episodes on SoundCloud.com slash Landline Podcast talkforliving.com, Stitcher, iTunes. Tim, you're on a really well-listened to podcast. Do you have any, do you have any like, just thank yous for the, for the audience you want to share, or do you care? I'm looking at, Alex, I'm looking for hard numbers. Do you want to talk about those on your podcast at any point? I'm willing. Well, the hardest number you're going to get is the 50th episode coming up with new voiceovers a little uh, stop in from all your friends, including Tim. It's going to be a gala event to set off the next stratosphere of the podcast as we've been treating this first 50 episodes like a Broadway preview with Lynn Melinda Miranda from Hamilton. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Liz. I think that, I think that was close, but. L- L- Lynn Melinda Miranda. Which is funny. New York Post headline today, show after Miranda leaves, disaster, or something like that. And then the disaster was for the audience when they thought he was coming. It wasn't actually the show was fine. So so anyways, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us basically nothing about this bottle of Chablis. Um, next time I'll make sure to prod you more. Um, but, you know, thanks for your input on fatherhood, on Chablis. 
on uh, having a pregnant wife and on kind of getting over our food phobias. Nobody on the East Coast has that chance. We have too much guilt, and that's why we live here. So um, enjoy that skirt skake, my friend. I will. I love you a lot. I love you too. Enjoy the show, everyone. Thank you, Tim. Goodbye.